0: We made it happen. Jimmy was an incredible success. I don't know where he is, I gotta find him. Gosh, I don't know, oh, oh, oh.
1: Oh, yeah, George, George, oh, George, George. We did it, brother. Yes, we did. did. thanks to Dan, you know what, and in the ring with Dan and with Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother. In the Ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We
2: love you. Thank Ooh, you so much. Mwah. Oh, yeah.
0: Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Sebastiano, joined, as always, by the original Long Island iced B himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy?
2: Dan, you know, second time this week, uh, two days ago. So I think, uh, and as you know, my my ongoing contract renegotiation. So uh, this, this is just going to add some more money to my pay packet, <laughs> as they said in Willy Wonka.
0: Right. Well, when... Uh... As long as you are not, you don't get the, uh, what did they call it, the future endeavor, you should be okay. Yeah,
2: the F.E.
0: <laughs> well, um, like you said, we're recording this on a Thursday, so we're going to have a lot of fun. we got uh, a lot of good stories to go over, a great story to tell from our guest. Benny, why don't you tell everybody who the uh, third man in the picture is tonight?
2: Well, well, this gentleman's been with us so many times that I had to consult with our accounting firm of, uh, I think it's Haskins & Sells.
0: Oh, so do duty? cheat Cheatham,
2: and Howard? Well, yeah, I think maybe, yeah, maybe that's that's who it was. <laughs> but uh, just to see how many times he's been on the show, but he's always welcome, and it's always a great time. And uh, the author of uh, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, from Gagne to the Road Warriors, the Professor Emeritus of Wrestling, uh, George Shire. George, welcome back
1: to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Thank you, Benny. You know, I, I thought about the emeritus thing, and I think that means you've passed on. I don't know, (laughs) but thank you, I've Uh, I've never- That'd be the posthumous professor. The only one that ever really called me professor, when I think about it was my great grandmother, sweet little Czechoslovakian lady who was, I think if she was five foot tall, that was exaggerating. She always had a kerchief on her head and the long sack dress. I mean, this was many years ago, you know. She came from the old country. Man, she'd go off in this Slavic language, and I wouldn't understand the things she said, but she was the sweetest lady. And when I was five, six, seven years old, she called me professor. So maybe I really am. Good to be on with you guys. What are we going to do? Well,
0: with the plan, we always start, whenever we have guests on, we always start with the same question about... You know, the, we always say it's like cause the snowflake because everyone is different, everyone's answer is unique. <clears throat> and Benny and I got to talking and, and we had pitched some ideas to you. The, the first question we always start with is about how you got into wrestling, when you became a fan, when you transitioned from fan to working. And and that got us thinking that you know, you've had we've had you on the show so many times. We've talked topics, we've talked panels, we've had you as part of a group discussion, but we've never gotten your story. So that's what we're gonna do tonight. We're gonna hear your story. So we'll start with the obvious. What was it that got you into wrestling and to become a fan in the first place?
1: Here's a story of a man named. Nice. Um <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting when you ask that because I know so many people that are my age, and I'm going to be 72 in a month, folks. And he told me he's 68, so I got four years on him. And he revealed your age, too. You you could be my kid, Dan. Anyway,
2: Actually, I'm the know, one who's 40, really. But
1: One of the things that has always kind of intrigued me is when you ask an older wrestling fan, how did you become a fan? What What attracted you? And the thing that's always amazed me is most of the people will say it just came about by accident. And there's there's various stories, you know, and they'll tell it. And for me, um, you know, it was weird when I was five, six, seven years old, six and seven. I remember going to a couple of wrestling cards with my dad and my dad wasn't really a fan. So. That always confused me. But he liked Vern Gagne, I found out later. Vern Gagne was, for you know, for those that don't know, Vern was the epitome of the baby face, the mom's apple pie, good guy. Everybody loved him. And he was a scientific wrestler, whatever that meant, you know. And so that's what I had found out. But here's what really happened. My parents, I had, seriously, guys, I had a very turbulent childhood. And it would take much longer than this show could ever go for me to share the horrific parts of it. But to make the long story short, by the time I was eight years old, my parents, having come back together for two or three times of being separated, uh, um, they were in the kitchen fighting, and I mean arguing with one another, and uh, they... This was obviously going to be the last time we were going to listen to those fights. But my little ears, I just seriously, I wandered into our living room and I turned on the TV. And on TV, and people have heard me tell this part, on TV was something called All-Star Wrestling. And at that moment, I turned it on. It was Tiny Mills, who was a big six-foot-eight longer black hair, greasy hair at the time for the 19 or the late 1950s. This would have been, you know, really unheard of. And King of the Lumberjacks, he was billed as. And his partner was Stan Crusher with a K, Kowalski, Stan Crusher Kowalski. And they literally were in the ring, just pounding some guy on on the TV, the double teaming. And I just sat there and I kind of tuned out the the main event that was going on in the kitchen. And I was just enamored with it. And so that was part of it. It was about a week later. Well, maybe a couple of weeks, I was staying at my grandma's house, my dad's mom. And uh, we used to walk down to the corner drugstore, which was about four blocks from her house. And she'd they had, they had one of the old soda fountains in there, if you guys are can even recall. Us. I do. But you'd go in, I they do. had a soda fountain, you'd get the big malt and the tin cup and the glass. Oh. And so I went down there with my grandma. And when I walked in the store, I, I want to say it was just by fate. There was a wrestling magazine on the newsstand. And it just bounced out at me. On the cover was Eddie and Jerry Graham. And I didn't understand at the time the significance of this, but it was the very first issue of Wrestling Review magazine. It said fall issue, uh, premiere issue. And I asked my grandma, I mean, I, I looked at it real quick, and, oh, I mean, they had wrestlers in it. So I asked my grandma, I said, can I have 50 cents, grandma? And I remember her telling me, she goes, she says, well, you know, that's a lot of money. I said, but please, and I got the 50 cents. So that, I think those two incidences were what started the addiction. And uh, I still have the magazine. My parents got divorced. And that's when more of the turmoil in my childhood went on because we had, uh, it was a mess with the kids. I was the oldest. And the oldest of six kids at the time, I was eight. And uh, my mother was pregnant with one while this happened, wasn't my dad's. That was part of the problem. Mm. Uh, One of the kids that was supposedly my dad's wasn't his. I mean, it was just a mess. So you can kind of see where all of the turmoil was. Well, the bottom line was, is that my dad was going, my mother didn't want us. Literally, she told us she didn't want us. And we got beat around a lot. In today's world, I think she'd probably be in jail for some of the things that she did. I mean, we got hit with sticks and belts and spent time sleeping on the floor in the closet with no food and and uh, and it would go on for days. You know, it's just that's just the way it was. So story goes: the court said that my dad had to take the kids, they got divorced, and he had to take the kids that were his. And it was me, my two sisters, and a, a little brother. Uh, the little brother was in actually in children's hospital, suffering from malnutrition. He was two years old, and gives you a hint again to what my mother was right, going right. through. So anyway, long story short, my dad didn't have a place for us. He didn't have a house. He didn't have any place. He he lived. He was living in a room, renting a room of a person that owned a house. One of the people he worked with, and so he had no place for for kids. So we all ended up going to different foster homes. And uh, I ended up being in foster homes, three different foster homes over a course of uh, a three year period going forward. And this is where the wrestling became, continued to be my friend. I continued to talk my dad into buying me the latest wrestling review or the wrestling world. Bless his heart, he took me to a few cards over that 3 year period and then I'd be in the foster home and I was in in the foster homes the only thing that I can say that was was weird about it is that I never felt welcome I was in someone else's family and a couple of them there were kids there that teased me they were a little bit older they didn't want me there I understood it I was invading their territory you know it was just so it wasn't good and that's where the wrestling uh kind of became something that I would just look at the programs that I got from the matches or I'd look at the magazine and I'd look at them over and over. And so that's how small it started. But um, once I got with uh, finally got with my dad when he bought a home in 3 years later and had the four of or the yeah the four of us come together um I ended up being the babysitter. I was 12 years old. My dad worked two jobs. Go to one, come home, and go to the other. We never saw him, so the reality was is that he gave us a home or a house over our a roof over our head, but it wasn't really a family because he wasn't there. We didn't have a mother, and uh, we pretty much were on our own. And I had sisters, you know. The others were a year, two years, and six years younger than me, and I became the babysitter. And I didn't like the role, and I was kind of in charge, so. I suppose from a, I think from a logic standpoint, I could have become a bitter delinquent person, you know, lashing out. I think I would have had reason to, I don't know, but it was always wrestling that I could watch on television. And we had wrestling on two days a week in those days. It was Saturday nights and Monday nights. And again, when he could, my dad, I beg him, could you could we go to the St. Paul Auditorium? Could we go to the Minneapolis Auditorium? Oddly enough, he took me to Minneapolis more times than St. Paul, and I didn't understand that because St. Paul was closer and more convenient to get to from where we lived. But anyway, that's that's really what started it, guys the uh, the addiction that I could just release myself into wrestling and and the the hard part was, Is I'll be honest, and I don't, I don't, I have not told this to too many people in my life. When I was going to school, um, word got out that we didn't have a mother in the house, which was very not normal for the 60s. You know, usually if parents got divorced, the kids stayed with mom. Well, this was the reverse, and we had no mother. And uh, some of the kids in school, they found out about that. There were a couple of kids, they, they uh as kids will do they picked on me they were one was older than me a great older and they picked on me and uh one of them he, he it hurt me at the time when he said it because he said shire you're so ugly even your mother didn't want you and you know when you tell that to a to a 12 year old or a 13 year old yeah that's it stung you know it, it really you, you didn't you didn't do anything to this guy but yet he was being mean to you and um so yeah, I became very shy. I I admit I withdrew. Um, I had a very ugly seventh grade, it was the first year at junior high. And uh I think that was my rebellious year. I I didn't go to school when I should be. I missed I missed something like 67 and a half days of school. Oh wow, wow, wow. for the school year. And I got so far behind in my schoolwork that uh, i i was i was getting d's i got f's but I got mostly d's I didn't turn homework in i I just didn't do it and i got this is where the turning point came and i tell i actually i'm kind of enjoying telling this because i I don't really talk about this um when, when time for seventh grade to end came, I had been so far behind in my work that technically I shouldn't have passed. I, I was a bad, bad kid. Oh, oh. And there was and, and this is where I learned a very valuable license, a lesson. And I I've carried this with me my whole life because I think people come into our lives and I look at role models and most people think of a role model. Model is that is somebody special, somebody who does great things, and somebody who's famous. And and I have role models that have been bad people, and I've learned from them.
2: Learn what not to do. do.
1: So with backing up, with my mother being the way she was, and let me state, let me just state this: I have long ago forgiven my mother. She has passed on. And I have no malice towards her at all. I've tried to rationalize in my head that she just wasn't capable of dealing with all the kids and everything that happened. And she was 29 years old when all this was going on. I've just left it that way and said, I got to move on. But here's what happened in seventh grade. I should in the passed, and I the principal called me into his office. And I can almost hear him tell. I can almost hear him telling me this. He says, Shire, you should not even pass. He said, I don't believe for one minute that you were sick, that you missed school because of illness. He said, I think you just goofed off. And he says, quite honestly, you're a loser. He's telling me this is the principle. Now, I think today they would probably, you know, you wouldn't be able to do that either in today's piece lawsuit, of I don't yeah, know. yeah, no, he'd be fired exactly it'd be, it'd be a lawsuit. But he did this. He said you're a loser. And here's where the role model thing comes in, and and the lesson. He made me mad, and I and I was mad in a different way though. I'm listening to him, and when I walked out of his office, and I passed, I went on to eighth grade, but all. For most of the summer, I was just simmering. What a jerk I'm thinking in my mind he was. What what an idiot. And I wanted to get even with him. This was a 13 year 14-year-old mindset. I wanted to get even with him. And I, I came up with a perfect plan. I'm going to get even with him. I'm going to go to school every single day next year. <laughs> And I'm going to do all my homework and I'm going to do my work. Okay. I was going to get even with you. Well, here's the deal. I went, I started, I started my perfect attendance route. And a minute ago, I mentioned my, my, uh, Czechoslovakian great-grandmother to you. In October, the middle of October of the eighth grade year. And so we're about a month and a half into the school year. My great grandma dies, and I loved her so much. She was just very special, and her funeral was off 100 miles away, and I wanted to go, but I sacrificed it. I said I can't because I was still going to get even with Mr. Corliss, the the principal. I'm going to show him. So I went to school, end of the school year. Here's the deal, guys. Uh, to show him and teach him. A lesson. I had. I didn't. I, I. didn't get a lot of A's, but I got B's and C's. A lot of B's. I was on the B honor roll for a while.
2: Big improvement. And, yeah.
1: and I had perfect attendance. So at the end of the school year, now I'm going to get even with him. So I go back over to his office, and I have my perfect attendance certificate. And I, I said to him, I said, Mr. Corliss. I wonder if you'd sign this for me. And he looked at me, and I swear to you guys, and I was petrified when I did this, but I thought I was teaching him a lesson. He looked at me and he said, I am so proud of what you have done. And he said, it would be an honor for me to sign. And he turned my certificate over, and he wrote on there that I had uh, achieved this Monumental accomplishment, and that he was very proud of me and wished me continued success. And I walked out of there and I thought, What happened? <laughs> you know? And so I bring that story up, and I, like I say, I don't share it. I even got a little tear. I, I don't bring it up hardly ever, but that was a lesson. He was a role model, and he taught me that being punk being on time, being there, attendance is important, doing your work is important. Well, here's, here's the moral of the story. Ninth grade came, perfect attendance, went back to Mr. Corliss, had him sign my certificate. Tenth grade came along and I'm telling you the truth, perfect attendance, went back, had him sign my certificate. Junior year, 11th grade, same thing. I get to my senior year. I get to, it was the month of April in my senior year, two months away from graduation. Perfect attendance. I got pneumonia. I was in the hospital for two days, literally during the school week. I missed two days of school. I beat myself up. I thought, "Oh, oh, my God. The end of the school year came, and, and I had finished out the school year with just those two days. I graduated. I went back to Mr. Corliss, and I told him, I said, I can't come with a certificate this year. I said, you know, what? I, I got sick in April, and he looked at me, and he said, and he, he always just called you by your last name. I think it was just his thing, because I knew he did it with other kids, too. He said, Shire. Don't beat yourself up. He said, you have already made the point that you are going to try to succeed. And he said, I I can't say how proud I am of you. Now, here's the deal. When I walked away from all of these then five years of schooling, I never really knew if Mr. Corliss had intended that to be the case when he called me a loser or if he had given up on me and I surprised him after all. I don't know. The bottom line was, is I thought a good thing came of it. And so that was a lesson that I carried with me um, all through my work life. I, I thought that going to work, yeah, when you're sick, stay home. I mean, I didn't have perfect attendance at work my whole life. I'm not saying that. But it was important to be on time uh, to appointments, to meetings, whatever it is. And I learned that valuable lesson from Mr. Corliss. But here's the bottom line. Line. Let's get back to wrestling. What the hell? All the all my junior high years, I followed wrestling. I didn't like the role I had at home. So wrestling became more and more my thing. And I was kind of a recluse. I saved my magazines. I wouldn't let people touch them. I had one neighbor that borrowed one one time and it came back looking like the dog used it for, for uh, <laughs> you know, and, and and then he called me a loser because I got mad at him for wrecking my magazine.
0: Oh, geez.
1: geez. I mean, so I told him, I said, well, it's my magazine. You don't understand. So you're never going to borrow another one. You know, it's that simple. But um, I started protecting my things and being in the environment I was in, um, it was important for me to always protect my collection. So my wrestling collection was my magazine collection at the time. And I had programs. But then I came up with this idea to start trading programs with other people in different territories. One of the magazines had pen pal sections. Oh, yeah, it was oh, a yeah. lo- it was a long shot. You know, you write you write an anonymous letter to some picture in a magazine, and and you say, you know, I'd like to get your program, and I'll send you my program. You know, I'll show you yours if you show me yours. Right, right. You know, that old that'll right, game. Right. But uh, um, I ended up coming up with a network of fans uh, here and there. Some of them changed. Some fell by the wayside. They weren't long-term fans or anything. But I got my license. This was the key. Uh, I got my driver's license in 1967. And the only reason I wanted to get my driver's license, the downfall was that when I got my license, I had to call call my sisters around and my dad was busy. I had to do it. And that's what I didn't like. But if I got my license, I could go to the wrestling matches. I never had to ask. I just go. And so I never missed St. Paul. I never missed Minneapolis. And every once well, I'd hear about a card in Hastings. I live in Minnesota, folks that don't know that. Hastings, or I'd be in, uh, you know, Little Canada, wherever they had a card. And I could go to these small little shows. And so uh, th- the bottom line was, is that in the St. Paul and Neapolis Auditorium in 1967 and 68, I'd go to the matches and I'd buy 10 programs or 15 programs. And they were only the four-page pamphlets at the time i think they cost they were a dime or 15 cents i don't remember 15 cents um i'd buy 10 or 15 of them and i'd have a, i'd bring a bag a plastic bag and i'd have them on my lap and i'd protect them you know and i'm sitting in the corner uh, a corner row right around ringside i had the same seats marty o'Neill our tv wrestling announcer and he was the ring announcer at the cards um short story on marty o'Neill he was a tremendous this athlete in his day wasn't a big guy he went into radio he was he played little league baseball and uh very very athletic person he went into radio was the dj got into all-star wrestling way back in the 50s and stuck with it so marty's the ring announcer well the more i'm at the matches you know on a regular basis i'm a regular face and marty would come down the aisle before the card would start and he started to say hey young man how are you Hey there, Hey there, guy. How you doing? And hi, Marty. And that's all it would be. <clears throat> well, this went on for a few months. Uh, Marty, during the intermission of the one of the cards, he came over to me one time and he said, "I got to ask you a question. I noticed you buy a pile of programs. What? You know why?" I wasn't even ready for the question, but I told him what I did. I said, "Well, I buy one and." I- I save it for myself. And I said, then I send, you know, I got one for, I got somebody in St. Louis that sends me the St. Louis program and somebody in Tampa, Florida will send me the Tampa Florida, and so on. I went down and he literally goes, that's very interesting. I never thought anybody would think of something like that. I didn't realize people do that. And I said, well, that way, Marty, I know what's going on in all the other cities. In a way, I broke k-fab there because when Marty was, come out on TV and tell the fans that somebody was injured I might have a program that said in the main event this week guess who's there you know right right <laughs> and that's the way it worked and uh Marty then said to me he says hey i'm I'm driving down to ortonville this week for a wrestling card they were called spot shows in the day these little gymnasium cards smaller town and they'd only have three maybe four but usually three matches on the card. And he says, I'm driving down to Ortonville. I had no idea what Ortonville was. He could have told me we were driving to Alaska. I don't know. He says, would you like to ride along with me? I'm like, what? Yeah, sure. You know, I told him. I go home and I said, Dad, you're not going to believe this. Marty O'Neill asked me to go to a wrestling card with him. Well, lo and behold, I drove over to Marty's house on the center, uh, midway area of St. Paul, got in Marty's car and we drove to Ortonville, Southern Minnesota, small town. I, I don't know, I think it was maybe 80, 90 miles, 100 miles away, I don't remember. And we talked back and forth. Now, Marty never broke kayfabe, but he didn't treat me like an idiot either. And I'd make a comment, and one of them that stands out in my mind, we had Dr. X, the Mass man, mystery, Man, here at the time, and I made a comment to Marty. I said, "You know, Marty, I'm always intrigued as to who this guy is under the mask, and I think he looks a lot like the Destroyer." And Marty goes, "Yeah, sometimes people just don't take the time to think it through. Never told me that he was, but it was the way he said that.
2: Right, right.
1: And that's who it was. Of course, it was Dick Byer who was the Destroyer. Everybody else, everywhere else." Mm-hmm. So that experience got me into kind of closer to the business because Marty would say to me when I'd be around, there'd be a wrestler, Marty would, you know, hey, this is my buddy George, something like that. It was, it was so casual. And I got introduced to Red Bastien. Red Bastien was a baby face at the time. And Red, for whatever reason, he trusted me, I guess. And he was the very first wrestler that allowed me to go into the wrestlers' locker room, dressing room, and here's where I really learned a valuable lesson. When I he said, "Come on in with me," and and I am seventeen. Walk in, and as soon as that door opened, and Red came in, and they saw me, I swear to you, that proverbial you can hear a pin drop. There was silence because there was a there was an unknown in. Here. There was a foreigner, and I heard a couple of the the kayfabe talk. I didn't understand what that was. You know, kayfabe language is kind of a carny language. It's very similar to pig Latin, if you you know what that is. And I don't know kayfabe, so the carny language. But uh, Red Bastine says the boy's okay. Don't don't worry. And that was the first time. And I got to know the guys, and they knew I wasn't going to spill the stories, or I wasn't going to spill that I saw two guys together that shouldn't be together because they're fighting each other. And, and, uh, but it was still tough in school in those days because, uh, when I was, you know, I still had another year or two of school and the kids in school, it was, it was very interesting that if they didn't like wrestling or they didn't understand wrestling, uh, you know, they'd tell me, you know, that stuff's fake. Don't you shire? (laughs) Well, <clears throat> I love that I just
0: conversation.
1: Learned, it, it, and it's true. I had it to me, I had it given to me. And I learned early on, Dan, that I can't debate with them, you know, because they believe what they want to believe. And in my mind, yeah, I knew that things were not always right, but in my mind, you know, it was I, I, I know I still believe that some of it was real. And that was the whole that was the whole mastery of it. You know, that was part of the fun and to to somewhat believe a little bit that suspension of disbelief that's what made it interesting to go but they made fun of me so i didn't talk wrestling with them and uh so that's where it started when i was when i was younger and then i got hooked up with uh jim melby who was uh 2 years older than i was when i was 17 and Jim and I had, it was funny, our relationship started in the most unusual way. I was 17, he was 19. And he was writing, he was starting to write stories for Norman Keitzer's Wrestling News magazine at the time. And Jim also was the one that brought for Norman, he would bring the, the magazines to the Minneapolis or the St. Paul Auditorium the night of a card to be sold and Jim was the agent sort of for Norman who lived in Mankato Minnesota another southern town so i got but i got to know jim and, and then him and i kind of did that together through the years but here's how i met jim there was a i went to one of the wrestling cards in 196 late 1968 and there was a for for its day it was state of the art by today's standards it would be crude in publishing style but it was a magazine called Matt Mania. And inside the magazine, it was it was very interesting to me. There were stories and pictures of wrestlers from different territories. And, and more so than the, than the newsstand magazines in that there were pictures of stories and stories of the wrestlers in the Midwest, in the AWA. Well, the magazine was 50 cents. I bought it. I went home. I was paging through it and I just thought this is the coolest magazine. Well, there was a subscription form. So I took the subscription form, filled it out, sent in my $5. I remember I went to my dad and I said, dad, can I have a check? (laughs) You know, I didn't have a, I was 17 years old. I didn't have a checking account. So I said, dad, can I have a check for $5 and I want to make it out here? So I did, sent off my subscription. Went to another wrestling card after that. There was no, there was no Matt Mania magazines being sold. Several months went by. Never, never heard anything about my subscription. And I thought, God, this is weird. You know, where's, and, and to me in that time frame, $5 was like, this guy just took life savings here, folks. So one day I go to the mailbox and I get this stapled at the top, bunch of pages. Run off on one of these, I don't know if you, I remember when I was in school in the principal or in the secretary's office, they had this machine that would print stuff and it was the, the ditto, machine, type, right? ditto machine, right? The, yeah, the, whatever you called them. And it was very crude. Well, that's what this was, a pile of papers stapled. And it was called RASLIN results. And I thought, well, that's, they don't even spell RASLIN right. It was spelled R-A-S-L-I-N with a, uh, What's the punctuation above the S? Doesn't even know how to spell rassle. And should have two S's, I'm thinking. And I look through this. Well, when I get to the first page, I'm getting the explanation that Matt Mania is no more, that uh, Bert Ray, who was the Matt Mania editor, had decided to give it up. And Jim Melby was taking it over. And this was the new format. And it was small little four sections on each page of wrestling results I was livid I looked at this and I went what paid five bucks five, for, this, five. for this yes it was horrible and I noticed that Jim Melby lived in St. Paul had his address on there I didn't know him at all I must I was so angry I must his phone number was in there and I mustered up enough uh, courage to call him no 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 holy cow remember this right shire I wrote him a Letter, oh my God. For a 17-year-old, I wrote this scathing letter that I got this piece of garbage and I'm disappointed and you Mm. took my money and, you know, the whole thing. I think it was a week or so, two weeks later, my my phone rang, picked it up. I had a phone in my bedroom. I was lucky I had my own number because I had a paper route. So I had money to pay for my own phone, you know. So uh, the phone rang. Hi, is George there? This is George. George, this is Jim Melby. And I, I remember I just went, oh, no. Oh, no. Because <laughs> oh no. I did. I was nasty. I wish I have saved the letter. I blasted him. Well, he told me who he was. He told me, he says, I'm really sorry that you didn't like the, the wrestling results. And he said, I'd be more than happy to give you your $5 back. He says, but I noticed you lived in St. Paul. And I just wondered if you ever went to any of the cards or anything anything here. I said, Yeah, I go all the time and we talked. He became a fan in nineteen sixty. I became a fan in fifty nine was when the kitchen main event was going on between my parents. And uh, we we had similar stories. We found wrestling kind of the same way, you know, and so Jim says, well if you'd ever want to, you know, go to the matches together or something, you know, let me know. And literally we talked on the phone for two hours. Well long story short, Jim became literally one of my very, very best friends. And I started working uh, with him to take the mags, the wrestling news to the auditoriums. Uh, Jim and I would drive down to Mankato for spot shows. We go to Redwood Falls, another Southern town spot shows. And then I started driving, you know, we'd go to Omaha, Nebraska for a card and we would drive to Indianapolis for a card. I mean, I had a license, had a car, why wouldn't we do it, you know? So that was where that started. And then Norman had me do a couple of stories for wrestling news. In those days, he didn't have you put your name on them, So you'd write a short story and it might just be a half a page thing or something. But um, I had many stories that I wrote that didn't have my name on them, So it never got credit for it. But then I had a chance to do some wrestling review, wrestling monthly uh, stories, actually got paid for them, And when I got out of high school, school, when I graduated, I wanted to uh, technically go into radio or journalism. It was kind of a combination thing. I loved writing. So I never got a degree in journalism, but I took journalism classes at one of our local junior colleges. And then I went to broadcasting school. I graduated from that. I never went into radio because of the instability of the, the business. Mm -hmm. and wasn't long after that couple of years, I got married, then we had a baby, bought a house. I can't just pack up and go to Timbuktu on a moment's notice at a T-Buck station, so I didn't go into radio. Ended up doing a little more studying, got my insurance licenses, went into uh, uh, banking and finance, and with insurance, it helped. And so that was my career, but I always stayed close to the wrestling and I kept writing. And that's when I got to know the wrestlers and they would tell me things. And irony falls back again because the wrestling results taught me that results, wrestling results are so cool. When I started really looking at them, I thought this is interesting because I could pick a wrestler and look at old wrestling results maybe from the beginning of his career and just follow him through and it was wow in this town he wrestled against this guy and in this town maybe two nights later he was teamed with this guy you know in this town he was billed under a different name in you know at this time period and he was a bad guy but then all of a sudden over here he was a good guy and he had a different name and all of that with results came together for me so i started going to libraries whenever I'd go to a town. If I went to Omaha, I went to the Omaha library and I'd go through old newspapers and look at Omaha results. Uh, I went to Lincoln, Nebraska, did the same thing. Wherever I'd go, I'd go to their libraries. Started spending time in my uh, local St. Paul libraries and always going through newspapers coming up and I'd pick a guy or a town that I knew they were in and I'd search the newspapers. And that was the old fashioned way to do it. You know, today, people got it easy. They can Google something and it's on the Internet. The only thing I warn people of all the time is that a lot of times that stuff is not accurate. It was you could rely on the newspaper clippings back in the day. But that's how I got involved in wrestling. It, it's just something that became it just started eating me up. And so the long story short on it, guys, no, no, I, I, if you got a question or 200, you want to ask me um, go ahead. But many years in my life, I learned how not to be a bad parent. I wanted to be a good dad. I wanted to be a good, uh, husband. And, and when I'd go to bed at night, that's all I'd prayed, pray to God to, to give me, let me be a good dad. And if I die and the kids tell me I was a good dad, I was a success. My wife says I was a good husband. That was, then I was a success. And I learned that because my mother was lousy. My dad, my dad, bless his heart, was a great man, but I, I we he just was never around. He he gave me nothing, to um, never went to anything at school, never was involved in anything I did or any of the other kids, and it taught me that I had to be involved with my kids. I wanted to go to their concerts. I wanted to go to their school events. Um, I wanted to be there when they celebrated something to their softball games or whatever it was. And I ended up with a great wife who understood my wrestling hobby, that I was nuts and that every day I was involved with something, writing, researching, um, going to some convention, WFIA can re- reunions and cauliflower alley clubs and you name it. And, uh, The whole thing was, is that even with all those things, you know, there are times when life weighs on you. I had job issues, uh, things that went wrong with work, dealing with people. And like everyone else, we in the early years, you know, we had bills. We had times when where do we get the money to pay this? And, you know, it it all comes together. But I realized that uh, I learned a lot from people that didn't, my dad never did it right. He, he filed bankruptcy four times, four.
2: Wow. And,
1: and it was because he couldn't manage money. He, he he just was awful. And at 17 years old, I'd be sitting down with him with a piece of paper and I'd be writing down what his income was, what his bills were. And my God, dad, you got money all over the place and you're not paying the bills. You know, and then I go into that type of a business. I went into the loan business, and that's what I did managing and teaching, training, and uh, for lending for 35 years. So, kind of on the job training from my dad. So, I learned from people that did the things wrong. And then I learned with wrestling, whenever my life was tough, whenever there were times when I'd come home from work and I'd just tell my wife, I'd say, I need to, I called it decomposing. I need to decompose. And i go up, take my suit and tie off and just go to my wrestling room for half hour, come back out and the world's in sync. And strangely enough, I tell you that it's like a, it's like a, a, a drug. And I do that to this very day um, when I have a tough time. Just let me soak in wrestling and I go into my room. I can pull out some files so I can do some research or and I do it every day. I've now been retired from my job 15 years and I've loved every minute of it. I did not uh, leave my jobs hating them. I loved my work. I loved my training. I loved my lending. I loved the people. I loved management that I was in, but um, I love retirement a lot better. And I have... Uh, I don't think there's been a single day that went by the last 15 years that I haven't done something involving wrestling. You know, sometimes today it's maybe spending time on some wrestling boards and, you know, writing something or doing something or sharing something, but I still do research. I still do life results records. I have a wrestling room in my house that has uh, literally over 300 Framed eight by ten glossy photos, posters, eleven by fourteen, whatever they are, uh, Some programs on the wall, ceiling to floor, wall to wall. there's no there's no blank space in this room. And when you walk in there's it's it's weird how I can always see something different for whatever reason, and a a story pops in my head or something happens. And some of the joy in that was that the guys in the business, the wrestlers, they never saved a darn thing. The majority of them didn't. They didn't save a program from a town they were in. They didn't save their publicity photos. They didn't save the wrestling magazine that had them on the cover or a story in it. And so when they find somebody like me And I mean, there are others out there like me that have these collections. But when they find somebody, they go, oh, my God. And Nick Bokwinkle, here's the perfect person to explain this. Nick would come to my house, and the very first time he walked into my wrestling room. And he walked in, and he stopped in the doorway. And you had to know Nick to appreciate Nick. He had this wry sense of humor. And he had a grin that he could give you. But he walked in the room and he stopped and he just looked and his head kind of went around and, you know, up and down. And he just looks at me and he goes, you're sick. (laughs) And it was the greatest compliment Compliment, in the world. It was. But then he told me, he said, I applaud somebody like you for having all this stuff. He says, because we never saved it. He said, I've I worked all these years and I, I don't have programs and I don't have pictures. And so we became friends and he, so many times he would call me on the phone and he would say something to the effect of, uh, did, did I ever wrestle in, or what, what year did I wrestle in this town, in this territory? And most of the time, I'd rattle it off the top of my head. If I didn't, I could look it up real quick. I have seven file cabinets in my room with programs from all over the country. And I have bios on all the wrestlers. I have individual files with pictures, bios, stories, clippings, things that I collect. I put it in their files so I can go to any wrestler and pull it out. And so Nick would would uh, ask me those questions. And one that I have shared before, and and it's funny, so I'll share it with you. He called me one time and he said, uh, did I ever wrestle, uh," trying to think of the towns, Uh, in uh, Buffalo, Buffalo area, Buffalo, New York. Did I ever wrestle in Buffalo, New York? And I said, yeah, you did in uh, 1961. But you weren't Nick Bockwinkle there. And I hear him on the other, and he goes, well, who the hell was I? I said, well, you wrestled as Roy Diamond. He says, oh, yeah, I remember. That was the promoter, Martinez. Pedro Martinez. He says, the guy was a crook. I said, oh, well, that's kind of strong, Nick. He goes, no. He said, the guy, he was noted for not paying the boys or not giving you what he promised you. And he says, so I went into his town and I was supposed to go in there. And in those days in 1961, Nick was a baby face. He was about six years into the business and he wrestled as, they always billed him as young Nicky Bockwinkle. And he'd be Warren Nick or Warren Bachwinkle's kid. You know, they would tell this story in the programs. But he was young Nicky Bachwinkle. He says, yeah, I go in there and Martinez tells me he doesn't want me as Nick Bockwinkle. He says, if it's okay with you, Nick, I'm going to call you Roy Diamond. And Nick says, and I looked at him and I said, what? And he asked me if that was okay. And Nick says, I looked at him and I said, I don't care if you call me asshole, just pay me. And so I said to Nick, I said, Nick, that would be funny. I said, in this corner, ladies and gentlemen, at 232 pounds from St. Louis, Missouri, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) So we we laughed about that. And, And I said, you know, you only worked for him for four cards as Roy Diamond. He says, I know, he didn't pay me, I left him. He says, the guy doesn't pay. So he was Roy Diamond for four matches which is interesting when you look at history. So I compiled, took time out to put Nick Bockwinkle's life results record together. Now, here's the interesting thing, guys. We know wrestling is prearranged. We know results are predetermined. So somebody could say, well, then what difference does it make whether they won or they lost or got DQ'd or counted out? You know what? Again, the stories tell you As you look at the results, they tell you how the feud progressed, why he lost, because they were building for another card, or why he got disqualified, or why the opponent was disqualified, or why someone interfered, you know, all of those results tell this. So, I started uh, making it my mission that I was going to do Nick's results record, and Again, I'm going to libraries, I'm going to clippings, I'm going to my programs. I'm asking friends that knew him, send me if you got copies of clippings, whatever, and trying to compile this. So this is all research work. And I mean, that wasn't, you know, like I said, it wasn't the days where you could Google something, at you all. Know, oh, there it is. So uh, I got all these results together. And the one thing I will tell you is that every results record I've ever done subsequent subsequent to this, they're never all complete because there's always another result out there. There's always, oh my God, I just found three results. I didn't realize. And you, I verify him to make sure that it's the right time period, that it was there, that he wasn't anywhere else, you know, if that happens, but they're never complete. But I gave, I had put Nick's record together. And uh, at the time I would say it was about, I want to say 85 to 90% of all of his matches throughout his career up to, it would have been up to 1988 when he pretty much left the business. And uh, I had a chance to have a copy made and I gave it, I wanted to give it to Nick. And so, again, I have this blank piece of paper that I use as example, but I had, um, I got together with Nick, it was at a reunion here in the Twin Cities And I asked him, I says, Nick, would you do me a favor? I said, would you sign a copy of my copy of the record I just gave you? Sure. So he takes the pen and he starts to write down there and he stops and he looks up at me and he says, how do you spell statistician? And I looked at him and I said, Nick, you're the one with the big words on the interviews. I don't know. Right. So he... so he just looks at me and he continues to scribble. And it's to George, my favorite statistician is what he was writing. And then he signed Nick Bogwinkel. Well, I've got, I wish I had it here now. I have the copy and I tell you statistician is all messed up. It, but that's what makes it special. Cause I said, Nick, you just made this a collectible. And cause Nick would come out on his interviews and he'd use these big words Oh yeah. that, you oh, know, yeah. he had you running out to get the dictionary to look him up as he's talking. And he did this on purpose just to, you know, be sophisticated. So that's why that was special. And, uh, one of the things that happened to me when I was, um, two months away from graduating from high school, we had, a the wrestling office was going to, uh, run a card in cottage grove minnesota where i lived and it was at my high school um the cottage grove police reserve were doing it as a fundraiser and they knew that i liked wrestling so they asked me if i would go to the wrestling office with one of the officers and if we could try to work out getting a wrestling card sure so i go in i knew I knew at that time, Bill Casisto, who was what they called the matchmaker for the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club. And I knew Wally Carbo. But I dealt with Bill Casisto that day. We walked in. And again, I'm an 18-year-old kid. Walked in, but Bill knew me. And I said, we want to kind of talk about doing a wrestling card. And uh, okay, got some dates. We got a date together. We were going to hold the card. Um, this was actually, we went there in February of 1970. And two months later in April was when the card was going to be. So two months before I graduated. Um, he asked me, Bill Casisto, he says, have you got any idea, you know, any wrestler wrestlers that you're looking that you'd like to have on the card, if it's if it can be worked out? Well, we had just come off of a, a big feud in the Minneapolis and St. Paul auditoriums, the big arenas pepper Gomez had been feuding with dr X and they had now kind of stopped the feud and doc had moved on but I said to him I said well would we be able to get dr X on the card and I said it'd be great if you could ha- we could have Gomez he says well we'll see what we can do we'll look, check the calendars I think we probably worked that out for you <coughs> okay so I I felt really good you know I I kind of just suggested a main event here and then uh, as we got closer to the date, my card was going to be uh, – I always have to remember this. It was going to be Gomez versus Dr. X, and it was going to be Blackjack Lanza versus Bob Windham And the opening wow. match – remember, they only had three, car, or three matches on a spot show. The opening match was going to be Kenny J versus um, – a guy named Lee Matson, And Lee was a veteran wrestler who was kind of in the downside of his career. So basically we had two low level wrestlers in the uh, thing, in the match. So we get to the night of the matches. We're in my gymnasium. I get to be the ring announcer. That was cool. That was gonna be the first time I was gonna be a ring announcer. And I was excited. And uh, it, I, I, I know I have this vengeful, vengeance side in me. There were kids in school that always laughed at me. I told you when I followed, you know that stuff is fake. Well, there were a few of them that were in the gymnasium that night, and I took delight in knowing that I was the ring announcer, and they were just a fan, you know, or whatever. But here's the deal. We get about 15 minutes before the card, and things are going well. I'm sitting at the table by ringside, and Somebody come out. I have no idea who it was. He says, they want to see you in the locker room. Okay. So I go back to our gymnasium. It's my high school. Go back in there. And they had, you're familiar with the the way the lockers were. They'd have a bench and then another bench. They were in an L shape. Mm -hmm. Right. I go in there. Here's Dr. X with his mask sitting on one bench. And then on the L side, Right in front of him is Pepper Gomez. Well, break cafe, folks, you know. I said, okay. You know, I that I had not met Dr. X before this. I had never talked to the guy. But he evidently was the one that was in charge at the show, kind of the guy in charge. He says to me, well, we got a problem. And he's talking in his normal Dick Buyer voice. He's got a voice that was just you could pick him out of a crowd anywhere. He says, we got a problem. He says, Gomez here, can't wrestle. He's uh, got an inner ear infection, and his equilibrium is off. Now, here's the deal. Gomez was there. So I took it upon myself to mentally think, all right, I'm going to take this as being real because Gomez really is here, and he's just not feeling well. And... uh, so Doc says to me, so he's not going to be able to wrestle. And I'm kind of like, okay. He goes, well, and that's not the only problem. He says, Lanza's stuck in Chicago. He's not going to be here. Now, that one I picked out right away. I said, okay, this is the typically missed his plane connections from Chicago. They used to pull that all the time, you know. And, but then I thought, oh, my God. Okay, Lanza's not going to be here. Then Doc come up with his, he just kept talking He come up with the perfect plan. He says, so here's what we're going to do. Now I got I to gotta make sure I get this right. He says, we're going to have, oh boy, we're going to have X and Wyndham. He says, we're going to have me and Wyndham versus Jay and Madsen. In the main event, it'll be a tag team match. And then we'd have two we We'd have two preliminary matches. Wyndham would go against Jay and X would go against Madsen. That was the way he wanted it out. Well, I thought about that, and I swear to you, I don't know where I got the guts. But I looked at him and I said, could we do it a different way? And Doc says, I don't care what you want to do. I said, well, could we put you, meaning Dr. X, could we put you and Matson against Jay and Wyndham? And he looks at me and he's looking through the mask. He goes, yeah, we can do that. I said, and the reason I want to do that is because that way we've got a main event guy on each side, meaning Wyndham and Doc. Okay. That's what we're going to do. So that was the card. So I walk out. Now we're right at 8 o'clock. The match, the card was supposed to start. I got to go into the ring. And I remember I had to announce to the crowd that Pepper Gomez wasn't going to be there and that we were going to adjust the crowd. They booed me. I had had like 1,200, 1,500 people booing me. I, oh, no, I felt no. like I... Got heat, got heat. I did, I got heat. And so I, I immediately said, hey, I'm only the messenger here. I said, we've got a good card. It's going to work. And I told him what we were going to do. Well, I don't know that it sounded good on paper to some of these folks, but I will tell you this. The card went off without a hitch. The tag team match, I swear to you, Land or uh, Wyndham... And Doc and Jay and Madsen, they made that match so good. They worked. They worked hard. And Doc and Wyndham, I mean, they just, I I just sat back and I thought, I was happy. I said, I made this match. I I just promoted my first card. And I was, I was happy with it. (laughs) Well, after the card was over, I went back and I was able to thank doc and windham and uh i told him i said guys i i really i loved you you put on a great car a great match and thank you so much and and doc he thanked me he said no thank you he says we wanted to we wanted to you know this wasn't going to go off like you wanted it to and we wanted to to make it work so that was my night as a promoter and but it also started uh really the rest of my life friendship with Dr. X Ted byer and uh he he was uh he was far and above my favorite wrestler of any that I've ever seen in my life people say well who's your favorite wrestler i've got tons of favorite wrestlers but dr x is number 1 period i just i love the gimmick the mask i loved his 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 interviews i loved the way he worked um as a baby or a uh, heel, he was great as Doctor X, and so that's how that all started. So I need to take a drink of water and well, ask, well, a, ask a question.
0: I was actually just about actually to say, George, we're, to say, we're, we're we're over an hour, already. Over an hour already. So, uh, so uh, I, mean, of, I mean, that's a hell. of a. No, that's a hell of a that's story, a story of that you just told. Where, or he, you went from, from, <clears> where he went from. he went from. Uh, you know, uh, you know your, your start your in start school, in, school and and, and head head to back to the high school to, really, to the high school. I love those. Really. Of, I love those kind of. Uh, uh, what what is that? What, many, what is that? Any sort of a, uh, come home come again. home again. Full circle, yeah. Full circle. Full circle,
1: yeah. I went back to the high school again in 1972. Um, the Minneapolis Wrestling Club promoted another card, and I got to be the announcer for it. Oh nice. And it was uh, the main event was Ramon Torres who had just come into the territory and was getting a decent push. He had beaten Larry Hennig on a TV match for his debut to kind of build him up right. And so right. our match at the uh, school gymnasium was going to the main event was Hennig versus Torres. And I had a chance to meet Larry Hennig that night and then I had a chance to meet Ramon Torres and fan clubs were a big thing back then for wrestlers and I was talking with Torres and he had just come off of uh, a year earlier his brother Alberto had died after a match in Omaha and uh, Ramon and I were talking about that and uh, I ended up starting a fan club for him for Ramon Torres so that got me into the magazines and then eventually I was doing fan club columns and so it all evolved where eventually I was around the business enough where the guys knew me and they learned to accept me. And so many of them became my friends. And, you know, Larry Hennig, um, I remember I was with him about a week before he died. I was with him all day at an event here in Robbinsdale. And, and uh, a couple of days later, he called me after the event and he thanked me on the phone. He thanked me. He said, I wanted to thank you for putting me over at this event. He said, and for always being there for me and the and the boys. I got off the phone and I told my wife, I said, that was Larry that just called to thank me. I mean, it was, you know, I don't get paid for this stuff, but it, it, that meant more than money could give me. Well, sadly, that was the last time I talked with him because uh, it was just like a, a few days later he passed away. And that that really hurt. I mean, I was blessed that he had called me and it was almost like I thought later, you know, maybe he knew and he was just, but anyway, so, you know, those friendships, Dr. X was at my house. Oh man, sitting at my desk talking about different wrestlers and telling me stories. Nick Bachwinkle had his 60th birthday party at one of the local country clubs here in uh, Minnesota. And, uh, you know, this goes back to 94, but he had his 60th birthday party, and of all the wrestlers and the friends that he invited to this country club, I was there. And uh, he said later, you earned the right to be here.
0: Nice.
1: I nice. think that says it all.
0: Absolutely. absolutely. Wow. Cool. Wow. Cool. George is we. George wrap up wrap for the up night for the night
1: sorry i'm sorry trying i'm trying the echo.
0: to echo i don't we wrap, hear it as we, wrap, as we wrap up as for we the wrap night for the night uh, uh we're going to get, to, gonna your get book, to your book, but Benny, you haven't you had, had really a chance to say anything really tonight. To final, say anything thought to tonight
2: you? final thought to you? Well, and well, George kind of touched on it at the very end, but <laughs> that he became, you know, from a fan to an actual part of the business. And he formed these lifelong friendships with men like Bachwinkle and, and uh, Dick Byer. And I believe he also had a very close friendship with, uh, with Kenny J. And it's just that's really what this is all about, the bonds that were formed.
1: You know, Benny, the the interesting thing was, is that back in 2000, when I was going to the Cauliflower Alley reunions, um, Dick Beyer, Red Bastine, and Nick Bockwinkle told me that I had to be on the, they wanted me on the board of directors of Cauliflower Alley Club. And they said I had earned a right to be there. Now, this isn't bragging, but this is, this is a moment when you say, you know what? I'm I'm humbled. And I went into the room for the first board meeting, and at that point in time, I'm sitting at a round table with Bockwinkel, Bayer, Bastine, Penny Banner, Lady Wrestler, uh, Killer Kowalski. Wow. Uh, there was a, a former wrestler Tom Drake was there. Uh, Dean Silverstone who was a promoter in the Pacific Northwest, Carl Lauer, who had been a promoter for years. And there were a couple of others. And I'm in awe that I'm like, holy cow, I'm the only fan here. And again, they told me that I earned the right. And so this is something where I tell you, I haven't made a lot of money doing my wrestling research over the years and everything. I, it, it just, that has never been the motivation. Ten years ago, when the Cauliflower Alley was going to recognize me with the Jim Melby Historian Award, Jim passed away in '07, and I was on the board, and uh, we talked about doing a, a, a historian award in his honor because he was like the king of the historians, and he had taught so many of us about results and research. I never intended that I would get this award. Well, we got to 2013, and they called me, and they wanted me to have the award because they said I deserved it as well. So I'm, I'm at the Gulf Coast reunion a month before, and Dick Byer is there. And I went up to Dick, and I said, Dick, I was wondering if you'd do a favor for me. I said, you know, next month I'm going to get the historian award at Cauliflower. And he says, yeah, I know. And he's got this grin on his face. And I said, well, I was wondering if you would uh, – maybe do the honors and be the presenter for me because we got to choose our presenter in those days. On the table, my hand is sitting like this. Dick took his hand and he put it on mine and he says, it'd be my honor to do that for you. That was bigger to me than the award. I mean, I was like, oh my God. And that had come full circle because, as I said, Dick was one of the first guys that I really got to know in 1970. And so, two mo- or a month later, two months later at Cauliflower, he got up at the, the lectern and uh, he put me over, made me sound like the Second Coming of the Lord, you know, to the wrestling business. And I am forever grateful to him. And uh, so, yeah, those are those are the things that makes it worth it to be a fan but more so to be trusted and to know that I have that little bit of inside, you know, and I had other adventures in wrestling. I mean, I had a chance to be a heel manager for an independent group and so on, you know,
0: that'll definitely be uh, be a story story for part two. two.
1: George, George, we we let
0: you go. George Shire, uh, Minnesota's golden age of wrestling from Vern Gagne to the road warriors. Uh, Amazon, anywhere books are sold, as well as the AWA record books. Uh, do you have any social media or anything else you'd like to plug before we wrap up tonight?
1: Well, let me say this about the books: Amazon, yes, for all of them. The AWA record books, um, I'm my personal stash of those is limited, and I'm not ordering any more, so they're going to be faded out eventually. But the Minnesota's Golden Age, at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, if you like. Um, Go to my wrestling or my wrestling Facebook page, George Shires Wrestling Time Machine, and hit join, and you can get all kinds of old nostalgia. But uh, send me a private message if by chance you are interested in getting a copy of Minnesota's Golden Age and you do want it signed. Uh, some people like to have it have me prove that I can write, so I'd be happy to do it. You can we can work out a deal directly. But the best way is usually Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of your bookstores. They can order it for you.
0: Sounds good. So, George Shire, again, thank you so much for being here. For the original Long Island Iced Bee, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spashow. We've had a great night. We will see you all next time we're in the ring.